This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm your host, Josh Malden, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Davison, on this special series we're doing on systematic theology, its scope, purpose, and mission, all about what is systematic theology and what is it for. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. It's very good to be here with you. Let's talk about uh, our guests for today, who are we're bringing in two guests, special guests, Matthew Barrett and Craig Carter. Let's talk a bit about uh, Matthew and Craig and uh, why we decided to bring them in on this series. I'm really delighted that we have these two guests today. I can't think of anybody who better represents the resurgence of interest, the revival of interest in systematic theology among a Protestant audience. And they're really at the, the forefront of that in, in writing and in all sorts of creative um, initiatives that they're involved with. So I'll um, start by saying a little bit about Matthew Barrett, who's Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a prolific writer with books on the Trinity, the attributes of God, theology of scripture, and Christ's relation to the Old Testament. Um, especially these most recent books on the Trinity and the attributes of God, uh, written in a very accessible style. He's really um, on a mission to communicate theology clearly to a, a wide audience, um, but with real sophistication. Um, his most recent book's just come out, uh, and I can say it's creating really a great deal of excitement. It's called Reformation as Renewal, and it's about recognising the reformers as upholders of a long theological tradition, rather than as innovators or iconoclasts. We often have heard the story of the Reformation as a great overturning, and he's concentrating and making a very compelling argument for the way in which the reformers thought of themselves as returning to uh, an ancient tradition. And I think that really um, summarises uh, and explains Matthew's work very well. He's keen to help contemporary Christians and Protestants particularly to reconnect with the Reformation tradition and Reformation theology um, as a way in that to reconnect with 15 centuries of theology before that. There are few more convincing advocates for seeing the reformers as really deep readers of the church fathers um, and for helping us to see that the patristic period belongs to Protestants as well as Catholics. And one of the really best platforms there is full stop uh, for doing that today is the Credo online magazine and podcast that he's put uh, together. And I recommend that readers, I mean, not just um, readers, listeners uh, from a Protestant background, but all of our listeners have a look at that Credo online magazine, which uh, month by month draws together a range of, of really good writers. Uh, so um, over to you to say a little bit more about Professor Barrett's background. Matthew's training started at Biola University in California, followed by an MDiv and PhD in systematic theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And both he and uh, the other guests for today, Craig Carter, who are in conversation together, are active in Baptist ministry. Um, why don't you go ahead now, Andrew, and also talk more about Craig Carter. Professor Carter is another luminary of this current Protestant turn back to historical systematic theology in our own time. We could, of course, always point to figures from a Protestant background who have been interested in that connection to the past, to the great tradition. 
stretching down through the centuries. We could think of Thomas Torrance, for example, or to, of uh, John Webster. But I think what's so interesting about the contemporary turn is that it's found among parts of the church that have really been some of the most resistant to historical theology. So in the case of Carter as a Barrett, um, American Baptist tradition and uh, quite a conservative part of the American Baptist tradition. And they're really uh, spearheading this uh, return to historical sources in that world uh, alongside some other uh, podcasts, for instance. Um, So also notable in the case of Professor Carter is the breadth of what he's looking at as resources for Protestantism from its own past and before. And that's really well illustrated by his two most recent books, Contemplating God with the Great Tradition and Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. So the first of those books, um, Contemplating God, is about opening up historical uh, theology as a doctrinal treasure trove for today, while the Contemplating Scripture book is about the breadth and depth of all that theological history brings uh, in terms of ways to read the Bible. So a book there on doctrine, a book on reading the Bible. These are really um, significant moves within this Baptist perspective. And I think I'd point to a third strand, which perhaps will be the third part of Carter's trilogy, which is an interest in philosophy, uh, and more specifically metaphysics. This is, again, quite a new thing um, in a Baptist world. Uh, So metaphysics is the philosophy of being. Um, It's what philosophy has got to say about existence as its most fundamental, what reality is like, how it acts, about parts and wholes, change and stability, all that kind of thing. And there's a huge interest among theologians in this topic today. It's not historically been an area that Protestants have been interested in, but they certainly are today, and part of their retrieval from the past. Since theologians were often not only really interested in metaphysics in the past, but actually were also really important contributors to the field. And the advocacy of Carter and Barrett, amongst others, for attention to this kind of philosophy, being unafraid of it, confident and engaging with it as a theologian, is a really important ecumenical opportunity because this is something that spans all Christian traditions and has been a real locus for sorts of conversations that really haven't happened for quite a long time. And I think it's part of a confidence among Christian theologians that the tradition has something profound to say about everything, including the basic nature of reality. So we're going to get a lot today, I think, Bible, doctrine, perhaps some philosophy, and I'm really delighted that uh, Professors Barrett and Carter are willing to come on the podcast today and give us their time. Excellent. Well, I think with that, let's bring uh, Matthew and Craig in. Welcome to the podcast to both of you, Matthew and Craig. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And maybe just turning first to Matthew and then to Craig, uh, say a bit about yourselves before we get started with our discussion. This is a special series we're doing on systematic theology. We know both of you are very interested in systematics. We're looking at what is systematic theology? What's the, the, the purpose of it, the goals of it, and so on and so forth. But maybe say a bit about your own background. Go ahead, Matthew. Yes, well, uh, I teach systematic theology, as you mentioned. Uh, I've been teaching it for many years now, a decade, both to master's students and uh, now to PhD students. Um, Systematic theology is my first love. Uh, I think I should say that. As much as I love philosophy and historical theology, 
and apologetics. Uh, systematic theology uh, has been a true uh, love of mine since the beginning. Uh, I first fell in love with systematic theology by reading Augustine and uh, picked up Augustine's Confessions. And even though it's not a systematic theology as we think of it today, um, he begins by contemplating God at the very beginning. And that drew me in uh, almost immediately. Um, I am uh, also uh, writing a systematic theology for Baker Academic. And so uh, I'm spending the next couple of years on that project. Uh, very excited about that. I'm hoping it can uh, truly be, uh, or, or perhaps I should say it this way, it can really set a fresh tra trajectory moving forward that actually uh, also moves backwards by drawing, uh, retrieving from uh, the great tradition uh, before us. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But I'm also really honored to be editing with uh, Craig Carter here, a new series um, called Pillars uh, in Christian Dogmatics with B&H Academic, in which we are recruiting, um, goodness, uh, almost uh, two dozen uh, outstanding theologians to uh, model uh, dogmatics today and to do that in a way that's uh, quite different than, say, the last uh, century and a half, uh, which is, uh, or, or maybe we could say more broadly, quite different than modern theology in particular. Yeah, okay. I just retired from teaching at Tyndale in 2020. Um, I was there 20 years. I spent most of my, my career was in three phases. I was a pastor for seven years, and then I was an administrator uh, for uh, about 12 years. And then I was, uh, uh, ended up administering uh, as a VP academic. And then I uh, had a sabbatical and taught for the last 15 years. And then, so I, I started out um, interested working with John Webster, my PhD at uh, Toronto, and um, Carl, Carl Bart was my major theologian. I wrote my thesis on John Howard Yoder, so I was a kind of an Anabaptist Bartian. And um, then I uh, started writing a book on the doctrine of God, and and started reading patristics, and through reading people like Matthew Levering's book on Aquinas and Lewis, especially Lewis Ayer's book on Nicaea and its legacy, the fourth century. I came to see that I was on the wrong track theologically. I was involved in, uh, I was reading people like Zizioulis and Gunten and uh, Wolf, Wolf and Brenz and, and uh, following along with social Trinitarianism. And I um, realized that the narrative of the Cappadocians being social Trinitarians versus Augustine being a mere monotheist was not supported in the patristic literature. Uh, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't just me reading the primary sources and making my own amateur judgment. Um, it was that, but it was more being overwhelmed by the consensus of patristic scholars, of Ayers and Barnes and Anatolios and Young and Bayer and all of the big names in patristics. I was really impressed as a person coming into patristics from the outside. I was really impressed by the objectivity and scholarship of, of the field. Um, it was not, did not seem to be uh, divided by ideology and denominationalism, but it seemed to be very, very collaborative and very um, um, objective and, and scientific. And anyway, there was no basis for the, that narrative. That set me on a journey to um, basically re-embracing um, 
patristics. And as a Baptist, how do you get to the church fathers? You know, you don't have a direct path. Um, you're not Catholic and you're not Anglican. So what do you do? How do you, how do you give the fathers their due place in, in, the, uh, in, in, in your own theological lineage? And so the way I did it was to uh, understand myself as, uh, as, as in the tradition of the 17th century particular Baptists who created uh, confessions and catechisms that were in the Reformed tradition, along with Westminster and Savoy and Heidelberg and so on. And the London Confession was important to them. And once you accept those confessions and the theology that generates them, the 17th century Reformed scholastic theology, you are immediately in touch with the medievals and uh, Aquinas and their influence. And then you are, uh, and, and Thomas is summarizing the fathers on, on points like Trinity and Christology and, and so on. And so that makes an unbroken chain of, of um, derivation going back to the fathers. And so that's how I understand my theological identity now. Thank you. That's a great introduction. And we're going to talk in this episode uh, about the place of systematic theology, particularly among the evangelical world. And it seems to me that there's been quite a resurgence of interest in systematic theology among evangelicals. Now, I need to be careful not to group everyone in that world together as if it was a single homogeneous uh, group. But I think that I can turn to you two as our guests as having quite a lot of authority uh, and being able to comment on, on this sort of scene and the place of systematic theology among evangelicals. Um, and I, I thought we could talk about some evidence for that. And I would point to the shifting patterns of what I've seen at the American Academy of Religion, Society of Biblical Literature meeting that happens each year in November. If you go into the book hall, just like a football pitch full of stalls of, of publishers selling books, uh, it's an amazing site. And I've seen over the last 10 years, maybe a bit more, a shift, much more patristics, much more doctrine, sort of retrieval of Protestant thought from just after the Reformation, and a lot of interest in philosophy. So I thought that would be the four things that we could we could talk about. Um, am I right that something is, is stirring uh, and there's this new interest in systematic theology? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think you're right. Um, it, it really depends how you mean it, right? Because in one sense, I, I suppose some, take evangelicals, for example, might be surprised to hear that. Haven't we been doing systematic theology for many decades now? Uh, they might object. And uh, in one sense, of course, but there's another sense in which the answer is no, <laughs> as much as that might be a, a bit startling, because um, I think what we mean by systematic theology in terms of uh, the Christian tradition, well, it is quite different than what we've seen in the last uh, 50 years. And so when, when someone like you says, oh, there's a resurgence of systematic theology, uh, I, I'm assuming uh, something like this might be be uh, hidden behind those words, because when we talk about systematic theology, um, at least I would, I, I don't mean uh, just merely uh, what you see, you know, in the 20th century, 
where you, you could have an open theist doing systematic theology or a process theist doing systematic theology, or perhaps an evangelical who is uh, more or less piecing doctrines together, um, but, but not under any confessional or creedal accountability. Um, or if we wanted to talk about the doctrine of God in particular, uh, this has been quite common in the 20th century. There's been an attempt to do systematic theology in which uh, uh, systematic theologians feel quite free and liberated to jettison uh, major historical, even creedal components of the doctrine of God. Um, and uh, this has been common practice. And so uh, when we say there's a resurgence of systematic theology, <laughs> Um, yeah, we, we mean, okay, there's something fundamentally wrong there with that approach. And we could talk more about, you know, how does that come out of a certain method and so on. Um, but what does it mean? I mean, Craig alluded to this in terms of his own personal story. What, uh, what could it mean? I mean, you know, there, there's a little bit of a, an imagination here. What could it mean to actually do systematic theology in the 21st century in a way that, um, is in conversation with and even indebted to, say, the church fathers. Uh, well, now that that is actually refreshing in many ways, because uh, many systematic theologies, you can just crack them open, and you'll notice they don't interact with the church fathers, or if they do, it's quite minimal, or uh, perhaps just a proof a proof text here and there. But what if? Imagine uh, what if uh, a systematic theology um, actually took seriously. Uh, say, eternal generation, which was uh, such a, uh, a staple for Nicene Trinitarianism. What would that look like then for a systematic theology moving forward? Now, that's a fresh conversation and a very exciting one. And there's where I think we have lots of promise moving forward, because now we've opened the door to a whole new world in which um, we can have enter into this great conversation. Can you fill in what, what just for a, a lay listener what eternal generation just as an example what it means yes uh by eternal generation and and for a lay listener if if you uh, are new to this uh, you could just google the nicene creed and pull it up and you could read it in a matter of a couple minutes if that in fact i even have my students memorize it uh in church our church here in kansas city we actually say it once a month as a church corporately together to confess the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And you'll notice in the Nicene Creed that the church fathers, in order to protect the church from um, uh, uh, heresy, essentially, uh, heresy known as Arianism, they said, well, the Son is begotten, not created. What do they mean by that? Um, they are distinguishing uh, what it means for the Son to be Son from the Father who is Father. It's almost too simple to say. It's hidden in, in the very biblical names themselves. To be son means uh, to be begotten from a father, except uh, they call this eternal begetting because, of course, this is God we're talking about after all. So this is the son who is son because he is begotten from the Father, but from all eternity. So begotten, not created. What's so fascinating is that the church fathers uh, not only thought this distinguished the son as son, but they also uh, affirmed this belief in eternal begetting or eternal generation um, because they thought this actually uh, protects the son's co-equality with the father 
or consubstantiality, to use a, a, a more theological word, with the Father. So yes, this is the Son who's begotten from the Father, but this is the Son who's begotten from the Father's essence from all eternity. Uh, if we were to use maybe some more contemporary uh, idiom to express this, we might say something like, from all eternity, the Father communicates all the perfection and beauty uh, of the divine essence to his Son. And likewise, we can move from there to talk about the Spirit. Um, the Spirit isn't a second Son, but the Spirit is uh, one who eternally proceeds uh, from the Father and the Son, uh, or perhaps the language of spiration can be used to distinguish the Spirit as well. So uh, this language is uh, part of the very grammar of Christianity. It's in the very creeds themselves. Um, but it's uh, unfortunately uh, in the end of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century was thrown into question and neglected altogether. And so we're seeing an exciting resurgence in which uh, there's a, a quite a bit of energy in systematic theology to say, oh, no, we should actually not just pay attention to the Nicene Creed, but we should affirm it and confess it together. So I think that's a good example of how there's this interest in the Trinity, in the doctrine of the Trinity, which is, again, something you see in the book hall of this big conference. And I, I'm kind of still taking that as my um, empirical test case. And I, I think one of the things that I would point to then, if, I'm, if we try to get to what's happening that's distinctive and uh, you know where the energy is, I would say that I grew up for many years within evangelicalism, and the, if there was interest in doctrine, it tended to be very much associated with the atonement. So you know, every sermon had to be about the atonement, and the, 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 everything just came down to that. And even actually, historically, quite a narrow account um, of what that might mean, not that I'm saying what, it was wrong, it's just that of the many things that have been said down the ages, uh, it tended to focus in on on one. Um, so what you're saying there is there's this interest in the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I think you could say perhaps that there's a renewed interest in the doctrine of creation. Uh, for me, that's one of the things that's defining this moment. I was in, where was it, Denver this year for the American Academy of Religion conference. When there from IVP, sort of flagship evangelical press, was a book It was called something like An Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday, of Christ's Descent into the Dead. Uh, and this just seems to me a really good example of how the whole panoply of the range of systematic theology is, is on the table. I know people are seeing how everything connects to everything else. It's just a much wider range of things. It's not that atonement isn't seen as being central. Uh, it's just that it's seen as being part of a much wider range of topics that are all important. Does that sound like a fair analysis of what's going on? Maybe Craig. Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear what Craig thinks about this. Um, so I'll keep my comment short. But it comes back to the very definition of systematic theology, doesn't it? Uh, in which, I mean, John Webster makes this point in a brilliant way in one of his essays, in which he's lamenting how in, in his day, he's looking around observing how theology is uh, being conducted in, say, the universities. And he laments how theology becomes secondary. Uh, it always has to be paired with something else, theology and politics. Uh, theology, uh, it, it, you, dot, 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 you could fill in the space. And uh, Webster says, well, that's actually quite different and radically different than how theology has been defined um, by the church across the ages. Uh, theology is first and foremost about uh, contemplating God and then all things in relation to God. So I think 
our emphasis here is right because if uh, we are to do theology in a way that's healthy, I think that means uh, God has to be, it, it, it almost sounds silly to say it, <laughs> but as Christians, God must be God. Uh, you know, to use a phrase from Bart, um, the godness of God cannot move to the periphery of our vision. Uh, God has to be front and center. And then everything else will fall into perspective. So you're exactly right. It's not that the atonement doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, it's quite crucial to the Christian faith. However, uh, we will make a mess of the atonement if we first don't understand who God is. Uh, what does it mean for him to be righteous and just? Well, that certainly uh, will uh, have great consequences then for, for how we uh, perceive what is happening at Calvary. But I'll let Craig uh, jump in here. Yeah, I think when, uh, when we talk about recovering a doctrine like uh, eternal generation, um, we need to distinguish between two ways this could happen. Um, it would be, uh, one way would be for theologians in the 21st century to uh, come under the grip of nostalgia and just go read some old books and, and uh, investigate some traditions and kind of pick through the scrap heap of ideas from the first five or six centuries and find one that they thought was interesting and kind of pick it out of its context and bring it into the modern world and talk about it and analyze it and think think about its implications. That's not really what's happening. That's been going on forever. That's a typically modern way to approach historical theology. Here's how I think what we're, what's happening now is different. We are asking about a question, uh, this question about a doctrine like eternal generation. What kind of metaphysical presuppositions does one have to have in order for the doctrine of eternal generation or inseparable operations or whatever Trinitarian doctrine we're talking about? What, would it, what kind of metaphysical presuppositions do you need for this to, A, be important, B, um, be comprehensible? and C, uh, relate to other parts of the doctrine. And what kind of, of assumptions are brought to the, the creation of the Nicene Creed and the inclusion of certain phrases and words? What's the history of the debate behind those things and why are they there? And what was the difference between how, how the Arians looked at, at something like um, the being of God versus the, the Nicenes? And so, it's, it's, it's trying to recover the doctrine in its historical context, but also its philosophical context. And this is something that I, I think is happening, which is kind of below the radar at this point. But um, if, when, I, when, when you talk to the young theologians who Matthew was supervising, who were getting PhDs and publishing books, they, they are not by making modern assumptions about cosmology and, and about metaphysics and about philosophy. They, they, they are open to the whole thing, the whole package of pre-modern great tradition theology and philosophy in a way that has not been true in the past. I said earlier my journey about my theological identity. Uh, one thing that I think has happened is that there's been a tremendous rupture in the, in the great tradition at the time of the Enlightenment. And post and pre and post Enlightenment people are on two sides of a great divide. And that and the only way to understand that divide is to delve deeply into philosophy. And that's happening. 
And so when we talk about systematic theology, this is one of the main ways it's different from biblical theology, which evangelicals have always been strong about with biblical theology, but they haven't been strong with, with uh, systematic theology. And one of the main differences, I think, is this, um, this new openness to question modern philosophical assumptions and to investigate pre-modern uh, classical assumptions and to, uh, to, to see how those interact with doctrines. So one of the things that's happening there is a new interest in philosophy at all, uh, in as much as it's not that people previously would have been card-carrying philosophers of some sort in a seminary, and, and nowadays they're card-carrying philosophers of a different sort. Just philosophy wasn't taught very much at all. Now, I'm, I've written about this and said, it's not that the philosophy goes away if you don't own it, it's just that it's perhaps even more determinative because... You're not examining it, but uh, there would be people from within an evangelical constituency who would push back and say, "I'm not having any of this, um, you know, being taken captive by the by philosophy." You know, quoting what Colossians, I think. There, how would you respond, uh, either of you, to this idea that or this observation that there has been a fundamental wariness of philosophy, at well, least. I would just jump in and say that that wariness used to be the dominant voice, and it's it's no longer the dominant voice. This is the difference. There are people who who are pushing back against that idea, and not only pushing back against the idea, but actually not even bothering to refute the people who have that objection, but just going out and writing books on divine incomprehensibility, and and just doing it and. Uh, this is what's new. This 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 idea that um, I mean, philosophy has always been the friend of theology up until the Enlightenment. I mean, for the medievals, philosophy and and theology and you know even up the ante, natural theology and revealed theology have gone together. General and special revelation have been faith and reason. In fact, I I go so far as to say that the key mark of of classical orthodoxy is the um, idea that faith and reason cohere together and work together to, uh, to in dogmatics, that, that that's a key mark. And once you start having faith and reason in opposition to each other and you move toward fideism or move toward rationalism, uh, you are, that to that extent that happens, one is actually departing from the great tradition. Yeah. So one of the ways that we might respond to that, uh, to bring in a sort of wider range of the listeners of this podcast, perhaps, is to talk about this in terms of ecumenism. Uh, it seems to me that when you mention the fathers, and we should certainly talk about the medievals, and they come up a little bit, we should talk about them a little bit more, that there's, there's something rather beautiful happening here in terms of ecumenism, and, in, and a new sense of shared sources and shared perspectives maybe even just talking personally, how has any of this been an ecumenical journey for you? Yeah, it's almost like a different kind of ecumenism, though. It's, it's not an ecumenism of the lowest common denominator. It's an ecumenism of the roots. Yeah, there's so much gained, right? And, and Andrew, I, I, I'm sensing that even in the way you phrased uh, the question. Uh, there's so much gained um, because when you can enter into a pre-modern understanding of philosophy in relation to theology, well, for the most part, uh, you can pick up most pre-modern uh, philosophers and theologians 
Uh, take Ans Anselm, for example, uh, one of my favorites. Uh, Anselm just doesn't operate by the rules of modernity. Uh, uh, of course, um, that shouldn't surprise us because um, really what he's doing is it's refreshing for us, but it's it's not necessarily new in his in his day, in a sense. Uh, when he begins by saying, well, he, with a prayer, essentially praying, Lord, uh, until you uh, grant me the faith uh, I need, uh, I, I will not understand. Well, that's a very humble posture. Um, and, and that's a posture that um, resonates, I think, with, with evangelicals today, both biblically. Uh, but then also, uh, we have to remember, uh, this is this is the starting point for his philosophical adventure. <laughs> so I guess the point I'm after is they don't see this divide between faith and reason. They see rather a harmony in which philosophy, for example, um, what we call the discipline of philosophy, or, or what they would have called just the, the pursuit of wisdom itself, they see this actually as something that will serve uh, theology. Uh, and of course, I think we see this uh, from Scripture, don't we? Uh, uh, and this is why uh, I think our, our contemporary tendency to, to create a divide is so um, antithetical to Scripture. Because, I mean, Paul himself is a philosopher. He walks into the Areopagus and he's prepared to have a conversation um, about God's aseity. Um, and and what it means to participate. He's even he's even able to quote their own tradition to say, well, this is the the God and in, in, in whom we live and move and have our being. Um, this is quite fascinating because Paul hasn't even mentioned the gospel yet. Uh, he's he will, but but he is first paving the way uh, for this rich theology of the gospel to come uh, with certain first principles. Uh, John, in John 1, he will do something uh, similar, but different type of uh, rhetoric, of course, uh, by beginning with the Word, the Word who is with God and the Word who was God. Uh, it's not until the, the second half of John 1 that he begins to talk about the incarnation and the fact that this is uh, the one who gives us grace and truth, the one who is grace and truth. So I think it, it has been quite refreshing. And when I think when evangelicals today uh, realize could well maybe even ask a, a, a deeply disturbing question. Could it be that if in our maybe a genuine motive to not be corrupted by philosophy, well, that's actually an impossibility because you will be indebted to one philosophy or another. It's probably more of a question of are you unwittingly indebted to more of a modern philosophy or a pre-modern philosophy? And that's where I think Again, it opens a, a door to a whole new world. Uh, for, for me, for example, I'll just give one example here. Um, I think, uh, you know, many evangelicals might be quite nervous to even hear the name Aristotle mentioned <laughs> in conversation about, uh, you know, theology itself. Um, but uh, that's not something we have to be afraid of. Um, for example, if you take the uh, Reformed thinker uh, Franciscus uh, Junius, um, he wrote uh, a, a little book in which he starts to tease out just how, how should we approach theology to begin with? Well, he takes uh, Aristotle's uh, four causes, uh, formal cause, material cause, efficient cause, and final cause. Uh, and, and in fact, he even um, brings in a, a, a fifth cause, instrumental causation. And he says, well, 
what's the formal cause of theology? It must be divine truth. What's the material cause of theology? It must be divine uh, matters. And, and what's the efficient cause? Well, that must be divinity, the Holy Trinity itself. Uh, instrumental cause, that must be God's discourse. And final cause, that must be divine glory. And then secondarily, the good of, of God's pe- God's covenant people. Well, uh, here's a great example of how once we enter into that conversation, uh, we're very much benefited because here, uh, here's this reformed thinker who is uh, indebted and engaging with uh, not just the tradition before him across, uh, you know, across the centuries, but he's also in, engaging with a philosopher, the philosopher Aristotle in order to uh, equip theology with the, the proper uh, principles and parameters it needs to then uh, even begin in the first place. I think that's a lovely transition into something else I wanted to talk about, which was the revival of interest in some slightly later Protestant thinkers from not, not just the absolute first moment of the, the Reformation. But I think I should also say something, I don't know, be even a little bit polemical um, about, you know, we mentioned pre-modern, pre-modernity and pre-modern text quite a lot. And I think it's important um, to pick up on something that, that Craig said about this not just being a nostalgia or not just reading old books rather than new books. And um, to explore that a little bit in terms of philosophy, you know, what is it about the, the older philosophical texts that is so appealing? Let's just kind of name some of the content rather than just well, just having a distinction between pre-modern and modern or, or old and new. And I think it's it's things like the subject matter that from the Platonist tradition, you've got being and goodness and truth yeah. and beauty. These are just, it's not that they're ignored in later philosophy, but they're, they're not, they're not the, the central uh, themes. Or there's a certain kind of scepticism or another thing perhaps is a, a sense of scepticism or cr- not, cr- like cr- a critical theology of thinking that we, we can't really get to under- understand things. You know, from Kant onwards, you've got the distinction between what, what things are in themselves and how they appear to us. Uh, even in, in late 20th century philosophy, this critical turn of suspicion that things aren't what they seem to be. And it, uh, so um, it seems to me that there's, there's this new interest in, re- returned interest in these categories like being, goodness, truth, beauty, and also a sense of the communicativeness of things. That yes, it's important to understand that they're, mediated to us but things do speak to us and so it feels to me there are two examples of the of the how the character of the kind of philosophy that you're turning to might look different from some modern philosophy i'm not sure whether there's much to be said about that but i just wanted to make the discussion of philosophy there a, a bit you know, concrete in terms of concepts does that sound fair yeah I, i'm writing a book right now on metaphysics as a third in the trilogy on the great tradition and uh wrestling with that exact uh, question. Um, I, I think that uh, um, in some ways I want to say that Kant is the, is the villain of the, of the piece, but Kant represents the culmination of a long tendency that could, uh, I, modernity begins in right after Thomas Aquinas with, uh, with, uh, with, with voluntarism and nominalism and um, the Via Moderna and as it slowly works its way through, it, it turns out that by the time of the Enlightenment, you know, you have a you know two two philosophical traditions struggling within the West and uh, uh, with each other for dominance. And it's not um, 
and and so that struggle kind of comes to a climax with Hume and Kant, and they and and after that, there's a um, the the older tradition has has sort of been defeated as far as the uh, the, the 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 mainstream of the of Western culture is concerned, and and after Kant comes the deluge, comes the uh, all kinds of philosophy uh, uh, splinters and fragments. In fact, I've got a book here of uh, essays by philosophers that just came the other day, Philosophy and or Transformation, people like Blumenberg and Derrida and Foucault and Gadamer and, and Rorty, Ricoeur, Taylor, they're all giving their opinion as to, you know, what, what's going on with philosophy? What, does it have a future? What is its future? Where are we, have we irretrievably left the past behind? Is there really a future? Like once you get, once you, once you say that the classical metaphysical tradition of Platonism, which includes Aristotle, once that is outdated and rejected, well, is philosophy itself over? Well, well, a person like Richard Rorty would say yes, and Lloyd Gerson interacts with him, and and he argues that that um, the rise of philosophical naturalism is really the end of of philosophy because philosophy just is the Platonic idea that the empirical world that we access with our five senses is in fact dependent upon a spiritual reality that is that is intelligible to our our minds. And, and once you no longer have a spiritual reality upon which the material world rests and depends, um, then you no longer have philosophy. Now, this is a very controversial thing I'm saying, of course, but but this this book is wrestling with it, and uh, and and Gerson is making the point. And Gerson isn't even a Christian; he's not even coming out from a Christian perspective. He's a Neoplatonist, and he's saying that once you once you pass human Kant and you move into existentialism and Post and structuralism and so on, you, you're really doing something other than what philosophy has traditionally been understood to be in the great tradition. And I think that, um, that not very many people are aware of that, but when, when you see that, when you kind of understand that shift that has taken place in the last 200 years, a lot of other things fall into place and a lot of other things begin to make sense and the retrieval of the past becomes possible. I'd like to pick up, if I may, on perhaps, Matthew, your example there of a, of a figure bringing in Aristotle's four causes to do some interesting philosophical, theological work, doing some interesting theological work. And I don't know exactly his dates, but he's, he's in a generation after the reformers that we know best of all, like Luther and Calvin. Is that right? Yes. Uh... It was Francis uh, Junius. He is uh, essentially a late 16th century uh, reformed theologian. I, I think we could even call him a, uh, you know, Richard Muller has done a lot of work here in his post-Reformation reform dogmatics uh, in which he calls them a type of reform scholastic. Uh, and that word's key, isn't it? Because uh, he's he is essentially saying uh, they are not just retrieving the, the medieval elastics before them, both in terms of their method of doing theology as well as their, some of their uh, conclusions, uh, but they're actually transforming it for the sake of their reformed, uh, their, their reformed commitments. Um, so, you know, this ties into what Craig was just saying, because 
you know, Richard Moeller has written an article that's called Not SCOTUS. <laughs> the title gives away the conclusion uh, in which the whole article is just looking at these reform scholastics and saying, why is it that by the time you get to late 16th century and then definitely 17th century, they're quite uh, just quite direct and saying, yes, we are we, we, we won't go this direction. Though there are some exceptions, they're on the whole saying we won't go this direction of, uh, of voluntarism. And you could probably extend this conversation to say uh, nominalism as well. Uh, well, it's because they are identifying in their own minds what philosophical tradition they will and will not be embedded to. But they want to move that forward by then applying and connecting and really bringing to fulfillment those philosophical commitments with their particular, you know, reformed commitments. And, and that would have implications for like soteriology in the church. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I don't want to open a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> but this is one of the reasons why I, I, I talk about this in a, a book I have coming up called The Reformation as Renewal. Uh, the radical orthodoxy movement, when it claims that, well, the reformers must be the the bridge or the carriers of that voluntarist nominalist virus that then explains modernity. Um, I think it's just more complicated than that, uh, because here you have research by Mueller showing quite the opposite. Uh, it's not that no one's affected, but um, actually, I would say the reformers and especially their uh, immediate heirs in the 16th, 17th century, uh, they're very mindful of the fact that, no, uh, we haven't been the carriers of voluntarism and nominalism. Uh, we are committed realists in, in the, the classical tradition, and therefore we can have and do have, say, a doctrine of participation, which, Andrew, I know you have you know studied and written much about. Um, uh, Todd Billings is another theologian today who's done great work in this way because he's looked at Calvin and Calvin's been blamed in the same way. And he's, he has said, no, actually Calvin does have a doctrine of participation, which then means uh, that roots Calvin in this older uh, classical tradition. Um, so, so maybe I should jump in there and, yeah. um, and, and we could just uh, summarize some of that um, for the sake of explaining some of the technical terms. So I think this is a, compelling uh, analysis that the generation after the reformers, for various reasons we could go into, are able to take a bit of a longer view. And they look at the inheritance of the Middle Ages and they they sift among it. And uh, we, we, you're making a distinction here between one tradition, which you're calling voluntarist and nominalist, which tends to, I get like cut the world off from God and cut God off from the world and tends to um, put the emphasis on divine power in perhaps a bit of an arbitrary way and isn't that interested in investigating the character of the world because that's just arbitrarily related to the will of god and generally i guess you and i would think of those as being bad moves in the history of philosophy and then we've got this earlier tradition that goes back through aquinas and augustine and so on that just takes a different view on each of those questions and i think if i've heard you right you're saying it's one of the great characteristics distinctive characteristics of this later generation of, of Protestant thinkers who just kind of got edited out of the history a bit and people weren't reading, that they were able, the dust had settled, they were able to work out what of the medieval legacy they were going to endorse and what they what they weren't going to. Um, yeah. Also, yeah, let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah, I, I think what you're, what you're 
putting your finger on here is in, in evangelical circles, this is a, maybe to those who are outside of evangelicals, this seems like a strange conversation, but to those who are within evangelical uh, uh, circles, this will feel quite familiar what I'm about to say. Uh, typically, the 16th and 17th centuries have been taught in the classroom as if this is what I call the oppositional narrative, uh, as if here in the 16th, 17th centuries, you have a clean break from uh, classical theism and the great tradition of the past, which would include, as you mentioned, uh, a certain uh, realist uh, conception of philosophy. And now we're getting back to the Bible. <laughs> uh, I would argue this is completely bogus. Um, it's not that the reformers don't break with, say, uh, Rome. They do. But actually, they argue across the board, it's actually really remarkable, whether you're looking at John Calvin or Luther, or whether you're looking at uh, John Jewell or, or, or Cranmer. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much of a consensus they have on this issue. They basically argue uh, that uh, they are Catholic too. And perhaps, and this is where they really irritate Rome, even more Catholic, because they see themselves in continuity with that Augustinian and, dare I say, even Thomistic heritage before them, even though in terms of, uh, say, a doctrine like justification or maybe polity in, in terms of ecclesiology, they want to reform uh, uh, and bring things to proper f fulfillment in their own perspective. Well, uh, it, on that point, that means then from their vantage point, they, they really do think, uh, whether you know someone agrees with them or not, they really do think that um, the, the issues are not so much the ancient past as it is certain innovations that they believe have uh, surfaced in the late medieval period. So this is one of the reasons why, like when I'm teaching, I spend so much time looking at uh, not just Scotus, but William of Ockham and then Gabriel Beale, and then turning to, say, Luther's disputation against scholastic theology which, as it turns out, is really an argument not so much against scholastic theology across the board, but specifically uh, Occam and Beale, who he thinks their philosophical commitments have actually led them into either a Pelagianism or perhaps a semi-Pelagianism, uh, which leads Luther uh, to, to depart from them, causing great, you know, <laughs> uh, great controversy. Uh, it's not, it's, it's, it's not long after that his 95 theses follow. So this is a this is very eye-opening. Um, there's been some great work written lately, for example, um, on uh, kind of a fresh look at Protestants to say, why is it in the 16th and 17th century centuries that, uh, especially as theology is being written, Protestants are quite willing to engage sometimes indirectly, but sometimes directly with Thomas Aquinas. And when it comes to matters of orthodox, uh, orthodoxy, especially, say, the Trinity, uh, the attributes of God, providence, uh, Christology, let alone uh, his, his uh, natural theology and, and so much more, his ethics, um, why is it the case that they see them, they're actually making an argument for their own continuity with that tradition, even though, granted, they're going to disagree with him on, say, infused righteousness and justification, or his understanding of the papacy. Um, for for you know, uh, listeners who are maybe new to this conversation, uh, I would encourage you to pick up uh, David, a book that uh, is edited by David Van Drunen um, called Aquinas Among the Protestants. 
Uh, here's a collection of you know 15 historians and theologians giving a fresh look at uh, all kinds of Protestants in the Reformation and the post-Reformation period and, and how they were reliant on someone like Thomas Aquinas in particular. I think we could talk about this for a lot longer and we're probably going to have to wrap things up a little bit. Um, one of the themes of this podcast mini-series is systematic theology and I think another thing we could say about this period of the second third generation of Protestantism is that because the dust has settled and maybe the context is a little bit less polemical, they do turn towards writing systematic treaties that you know try to say a little bit about everything. Whereas I suppose you've got that to some extent in in Calvin, but uh, maybe early, really the first flush of the Reformation, the, the texts tend to be a bit more occasional and a, yeah, a little bit more polemical because they're responding to particular situations. And that's one of the things I like so much about the next generation or two. And perhaps also they've just got better interlocutors, I think. You, know, you, you kind of get better uh, reactions and arguments when you've, you've sifted out um, who the people you think are you know, most worth engaging with. But anyway, that's another, another conversation. Um, I want to, to wrap things up in terms of the questions we were going to talk about, patristics, return to patristics, return new interest in systematic theology and the role of philosophy and, um, and so on. And this very interesting phenomenon of a, of a renewed interest in the figures of a little bit later on in the Protestant tradition. We tend to close these podcasts with a set of uh, questions about books mainly and influences. And I think we'll move to that. Absolutely. Let me take that up. Um, and maybe I'll start with you, Craig. Um, just a couple kind of final quick questions just for quick answers. And one would be, you've kind of mentioned this a bit, but who is a theologian who uh, most influenced you early on? Uh, well, the, the uh, theologian who influenced me early on would have been Bart, but later on would have been uh, Thomas Aquinas. And uh, one that's been very important is Herman Bavink. And uh, another question we always like to ask is, if you're come across someone who's completely new to theology, what's one book you would recommend them to begin with? Um, well, I'm going to go, I'm going, I'm going to go off the reservation here and suggest that uh, a, a book that I, I frequently put in the hands of young students uh, is uh, Edward Fazer's The Last Superstition. And the reason it's a, it's a, it's a takedown of the new atheism, but it's really a history of Western philosophy in a very readable, entertaining, short format, and if you and it and it really highlights the difference between modernity and and classical philosophy. And so I think if a student uh, reads that, it uh, it it Mike's I've seen students read it and have their worlds rocked and and changed uh, as a result. And so, um, so that's one book, but, uh, bobbing shorter works are, if you want a, a, an introduction to systematic theology, the wonderful works of God or, or the abridged version of the dogmatics can be uh, useful. And, uh, final two questions. What are you reading now and what do you uh, plan to be working on next? Yeah. Uh, just this came the other day, uh, Ox, the Oxford Handbook to Early Modern Theology, 1600 to 1800. Some excellent essays in here. Um, been reading that, and I, I already mentioned the book on philosophy. Um, I'm reading a lot of stuff about Thomas Aquinas these days. Um, been reading Andrew Davidson's book on uh, participation. Um, 
this is a good book that I would re- I've enjoyed a lot. It's uh, John Webster, The Shape and Development of His Theology by Jordan Center. I would highly recommend that book. Uh, it really shows the how the late Webster uh, turned to classical theology in the last few years of his life, and uh, and it uh, differentiates that from his previous two periods of Barthian uh, thought, and I, that's a very interesting book. Uh, over to Matthew, what was the first theologian who most influenced you, and, and then maybe also what's the one book you would recommend to a beginner in theology? Well, I think uh, I can kill two birds with one stone here, uh, because... Uh, Augustine, uh, I mentioned this earlier, Augustine was the, the theologian that influenced me so much early on, um, shortly after Augustine Calvin did as well. But Augustine uh, had such a profound, uh, you know, Craig used the phrase, rock my world. <laughs> uh, I grew up reading my Bible as a faithful Christian, um, but uh, in my um uh, college years, I was introduced to Augustine, and all of a sudden, my entire paradigm for theology, as well as my interest in theology, um, changed. Um, Along with that, I would say Augustine's Confessions. I don't think any student should graduate (laughs) unless they've read Augustine's Confessions. I say that for a couple of reasons. One is because Augustine is is not just telling you about his life, uh, though it might appear that way. He is actually giving you uh, a doctrine of God as well as a theology of grace. Uh, But the other reason is because Augustine models a beautiful way of of, uh, contemplating God and and God in Christ. Um, And so I think uh, listeners will find themselves so drawn to Augustine, the way he he speaks in the prayer, uh, the way he, he is turning to his inner self than to be brought out of himself to understand uh, he can only ascend to God through Christ. I mean, this is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And this really, in a beautiful way, captures you know our discussion today, because I know we've been talking a lot about ideas, but for the class, classical theology, um, uh, theology was a spiritual exercise, uh, if I can put it that way. And so Augustine's a great... Um, uh, a great model. And final questions. What what are you reading now and what do you hope to work on next? I know you've got an 800 page tome that's just about to be published. So you're probably thinking about the next thing. Yes. Uh, praise God. I've just finished um, the edits on uh, the Reformation as Renewal, Retrieving the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Uh, that'll come out this May or June with uh, Zondervan Academic. It is a big book, but I, I'm really hoping it will help uh, people, give them a a fresh perspective on what it means to be Protestant. Um, And then I'm turning uh, to next to uh, this systematic theology. Um, Much of our conversation today is built right into that project as well. So I I would covet prayers uh, because it's a colossal task, but I'm I'm hoping it can kind of capture some of the excitement that Andrew mentioned uh, this renewed excitement for systematic theology. I'm hoping it can capture some of that and maybe sh- open up some fresh horizons um, to, to folks today. I would say in terms of, um, uh, you know, reading and maybe even some recommended reading uh, for, for those who are interested. Um, uh, of course, Craig mentioned Herman Bovink. Uh, Bovink will be um, a close conversation partner for me. But the other person... Uh, is Francis Turretot, uh, who I know sometimes gets lost in these conversations. 
um, uh, Francis Turton, uh, because Turton is a fine example of a reformed scholastic who, goodness, the man was so precise and he didn't leave any rock uh, <laughs> unturned. And he's really codifying the faith in a way that uh, gives, uh, and maybe this is the proper way to say it, uh, he is adhering to uh, a certain Catholicity, right? Uh, the, the Catholic faith, small c, Catholic universal church, but he's trying to do so uh, for the sake of his reform, you know, bring it in, in, into uh, his reformed commitments. And so I'm reading a lot of Francis Turton, uh, which of course has taken me to, um, uh, you know, Craig mentioned him, Thomas Aquinas himself. Uh, both of their works, Aquinas and Turton, are, are actually quite similar. But I'll just mention one more. Um, I have been, I have just loved returning to uh, Boethius. Um, if you've not read his Consolation of Philosophy, you, you have not lived. <laughs> um, it, it, despite the title, uh, Boethius is actually showing you how contemplating God, which is at the very essence of theology, uh, is not just the beginning, not just the middle, but the very end of, of what it means to enjoy the happy life, as he calls it. Um, this, too, is a very classical move. And so he's contemplating God, and he says, well, God's not just another means to an end. Uh, God is the end. Uh, of course, this is just an argument from simplicity. And, and so if he is the end, then isn't he the source of our eternal life, the one who is life in and of himself, in whom we participate for our being and, and, and fulfillment and happiness. Um, this book has, has been wonderful for my students. Uh, I think uh, it'll come through strong, even in some of the opening chapters of my systematic as well. Well, you'd be happy to know I just finished writing a section in my book on Providence on Boethius uh, um, uh, just the other day. Um, yeah, it's uh, well, I think that's a beautiful uh, capstone to uh, an interview that's been about the shape of systematic theology and a certain kind of uh, stripe of evangelicalism. Um, you're both Baptists, and if uh, you have been asked 20 or 30 or even 10 years ago whether um, the person that would have produced such smiles at the end of an uh, interview would have been Boethius. Uh, I think that I would have not been expected. So uh, the figure of this this great man who translated Aristotle into Latin, um, who was an influence on Aquinas, who is uh, you know, uh, of the patristic period, so interested in philosophy, uh, that he should turn up at the end of this interview, I think is a, a bit of a summation of what we've been talking about. Thanks to all of you. This has been fun. And I want to thank you. And I think we could have gone on much longer and, and maybe someday we'll go, we'll uh, go again. Uh, thanks to both of you, Matthew Barrett and Craig Carter. Joy to be with you.